Hello and welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, where each week we're asking one of the speakers or presenters appearing at Hay 2021 to select their favourite moments from our archive. This week, writer and former Hay Fellow, Dylan Moore, talked us through his personal favourites. Hello, I'm Dylan Moore and it's my great privilege to take you for a short ride into the archives of the Hay Festival player. I was privileged enough to grow up in the area surrounding Hay and to enjoy the countryside and to think it was normal actually for world-class writers and thinkers and artists to be plodding around the fields of Brecon Road every May half term. And then later when I became a writer myself I have been massively privileged to participate in Hay Festival's around the world, in Hungary, in Kerala, and then as the Hay Festival International Fellow 2018-19, to do the whole tour of festivals in Spain, in Mexico, in Peru, and in Colombia, from where this first piece is taken. So this was me talking to Diane de la Vega in Cartagena, in front of an audience of mainly university students, which was really interesting for me because I found myself having to recontextualize myself. My book had been an exploration of identity and of connecting Wales with elsewhere. But now I found myself live on stage having to consider how my hearers young people who'd grown up in Latin America would relate to my experiences and connect to the book. Welcome, Dylan. Welcome to Cartagena in Colombia. Gracias. Thank you very much. Estoy muy content estar aquí, pero we will do the talk in English because I won't inflict my bad Spanish on you. (laughs) Dylan, um, as you say, this book, which I, I was hoping we could have um, to show, but I guess not. Um, this book is a story of how you realized you were Welsh. So please tell us, what does it mean to be Welsh? Yeah, it's an interesting question because uh, the first essay in the book is called Becoming Welsh in 99. And 1999 was a, a turning point, really, in Welsh history and also in my life, and the two things kind of combined together in my mind. So my parents are both English. My dad was born in Liverpool in England. My mum was born in Bristol in England. And I was born in Cornwall, which is a county in the southwest of England. So I had no ethnic claim or family claim to being Welsh at all. And yet, my family had moved to Wales when I was just three years old, so I couldn't remember having lived in England. But I just always thought of myself, really, um, as I was growing up, as an outsider, as someone who didn't quite fit in to Wales, I suppose, and didn't really um, identify with any of the cultural markers of being Welsh, like I didn't speak the Welsh language, um, I didn't really particularly follow the Welsh um, football team and rugby team. It was more more about England. And then when I was 18, I went to university in Cardiff, which is the capital of Wales. 
And at that time, um, the Welsh Assembly just came into being. So this was the devolved parliament. Uh, it was the first time in 600 years that Wales had a degree of self-government. So that was an amazing turning point in itself. And then there was also, you know, being young, there was the backdrop of great music. So there were great Welsh rock bands like the Manic Street Preachers and the Super Furry Animals who were kind of taking over the UK charts and having success around the world as well. And then there was sport. So um, the Welsh rugby team that year, rugby is a massive part of Welsh culture. And the Welsh rugby team that year did well. They beat England, um, which doesn't always happen. They've been a bit more successful lately, but it didn't always happen back then. It was very rare. And, you know, I was just there in, in university and kind of, you know, enjoying myself and, and trying to work out, as young people do, um, you know, what my place was in the world. And I realised that the Welsh people that I met at university, the Welsh people that I met in Cardiff, I had a lot in common with. And the English people seemed different. Um, and so I, I kind of had a nationality transplant. And I became Welsh. And I, I you know, ended up you know, um, f founding a, a website called Wales Arts Review. I'm now the editor of a magazine called The Welsh Agenda. I'm a member of Wales Pen Cymru. So everything about um, my life and how I channel my energy into um, doing good for my community is through the prism of Welshness. So it's in your heart. I have a question that I want to get off the table because I promised my son I would ask you. Okay. Who do you prefer, uh, Bale or Ramsey? He asked me to oh. ask you that. Oh, that's an interesting question. So Gareth Bale is the, the big star at Real Madrid. Aaron Ramsey is, interestingly, he's just being transferred from Arsenal to Juventus in Italy. So he is kind of following in Bale's footsteps in a way and he's getting his big break at one of the big the really big European super clubs. Um, I have to say, so I'd like them both, obviously, love them both. I would probably err on the side of Ramsey um, simply because he played for Cardiff City. So he started his career, and I remember I was a big Cardiff City fan and used to go down and watch him when he was just 17. And you could tell even then that he was going to be a world-class superstar player. So long answer for... Short question, but Ramsey. And do you have any favorite Colombian soccer players? Well, that's a good one. Um, from the past, I mean, who does not remember Carlos Valderrama? Okay. Yeah? <laughs> it's, uh, that was like that hair and René Higuita, Tambien. Um, you know, they, the, the sort of icons that stick in the memory. And then I'm kind of racking my brain to put players who've played in, in Britain, like Faustino Aspria. Okay. Um, but this is all going back a little bit. Um, nowadays, my son's a big fan of James Rodriguez. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah. Thanks. I like football, as you can tell. <laughs> um, uh, so, you have a lot of uh, a richness in bibliography, quotes, and literary references in your, in your, in your book. Can you, can you tell us a little bit what, who are you looking for here in, in Cartagena, and, and how are you looking for this Author, because in in some of the story, in some of the essays that you write about the cities that you visit, you're looking for for certain authors. I mean, you go looking for Hemingway or or uh, Orwell. Um, do you have somebody in mind for Cartagena? No, not really. I mean, you it, like naturally, you would expect me to say Marquez, right, right. obviously. 
Um, but I have to say, I'm, I haven't, you know, I haven't read an awful lot of Marquez. Um, and we had this conversation backstage, didn't we, about the the fact that I, you know, when I travel, I obviously you're you're looking to be surprised and you're looking to go somewhere and find out about it while you're there. But also, as everybody does, you read the guidebooks, you you know, you do a little bit of research before you go. And I think the main thing that I'm interested in in Cartagena, and even the, this morning I took an early morning walk around the city, and I discovered the square where the slaves were traded. Um, and my wife's family are Caribbean. Um, I was telling you earlier, so somebody asked me the other day, oh, because my wife is black, where is your wife from? And I said, Cardiff. Oh, right, but, you, and obviously people, when, when somebody's a different color, people are really meaning, well, where are they really from? And so I explained, well, her parents are from Cardiff as well, and two of her grandparents are also from Wales. The other two grandparents are from Antigua and from St. Kitts, and then on the other side of the family, you have to go even further back. Um, so I am interested. So my daughters, obviously, have slave ancestry in the Caribbean. Um, so I'm interested in exploring, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in exploring connections between places and between people. And so I think, you know, this port city was obviously a, a kind of point of exchange for, for human beings. Um, and some of the cities that I've lived in and that, you know, I mentioned that my parents come from Liverpool and Bristol, which are on the other side of the Atlantic, but equally, um, equally to blame as being, you know, fulcrums of, of the slave trade. So I imagine that I might end up writing something about that. One of the great pleasures of Hay is exploring the nooks and crannies, perhaps filling part of an afternoon with an event that you would never have gone to if it hadn't been in that slot in the programme, or deliberately seeking out new writers that you've not heard of before. But another aspect of the festival is certainly the big events that it throws up, the greatest living writers in the world. And certainly we're about to hear from two of those people who I consider among the people that we've lost in the last few years who were in their day the greatest living writers in the world. And Hay will often throw up these very special moments. Um, and one of those happened in 2014, on the day that Maya Angelou, the great African-American writer, died. I happened to have a ticket to see her contemporary, Toni Morrison. And as Razia Iqbal announced from the stage that Maya Angelou had died. It was clear that not all of the audience knew and there was an audible gasp. So we're about to hear that, but we're also about to hear a section of another Hay highlight, which is the question and answer session that happens at the end. And what was notable about this particular session in 2014 is without any manipulation on behalf of the organisers, it just happened that every single one 
of the questioners for Toni Morrison was a person of colour. And I think for a festival that happens on the border between England and Wales, that in itself was a hugely, hugely significant moment. There will be many people in the audience uh, tonight who may already know this. You and I know that Maya Angelou has passed away. She was a very good friend of yours, same generation as you, and you gave a very moving citation for her at the National Book Awards very recently. I, I wonder if you have thought of what you might want to share with us or, or, or not this evening about her. I think I mentioned to you that two things. One, I thought she was eternal. I thought she would always, always be there. And the second thing was it hurts so much that I have no printable elegant, powerful, even interesting words to say what I feel about that. You understand that some other person that I felt very close to and knew fairly well just died, and that was Gabriel Marquez. And I was asked to write something about him, and I said, no, I, I have to wait a little bit. I can't just have it ready. And that's the way I feel about her. I need time to talk about Maya. She was important in so many ways. She launched African-American women writing in the United States. She was generous to a fault. She had 19 talents, used 10. And was a real original. There's no duplicate. There is no duplicate. Okay, I said I didn't have anything to say. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I can't talk about it now. I wonder if we can get the house lights up uh, for questions from the floor. Ooh, oh my, look how many people wow. there. <laughs> Hi there. The, the hand that went up first was the, the lady just there. Uh, if, we can, if you could just wait for a microphone. Thank you. It's just fantastic to be in your presence in this very large Where room. Where are you, Han? Oh, there you are. <laughs> um, and reading Beloved was one of the most significant experiences of my life. <laughs> I'm, it's hard not to cry. Um, <laughs> but I want to ask you something slightly different. You've mentioned Obama and you've also mentioned Marquez. And a couple of days ago, I was in a session put on very quickly um, to commemorate Marquez. And within that, um, there was quite a lively debate. There was um, Simon Sharma was there, and is it, I can't pronounce his name, but it's Oscar uh, Rivera, the Colombian professor mm. of Burbank College. Um, and one chap from Argentina um, 
said something n not negative but contentious, and his point was about closeness to presidents. And he said something contentious about Marquez and his connection with Castro. And um, I listened to what you said about not writing about Obama. And do you think, his point was about writers, artists, effectively not getting into bed too closely, <laughs> as it were, um, with pre presidents. And, you know, there, I'm like yourself, I'm a huge admirer of Obama. Um, do, do you think that writers must have a distance between themselves and current presidents, people in power, to re retain objectivity? I think I would need to be separate from. I, I think I would not curry, even if I admired the president enormously, I would not encourage you know, the back and forth and the conversations and the telephone calls. But I understand why certain people do, particularly Gabriel Marquez and Cuba. You know, he um, taught a course, Marquez, with me at Princeton after years of being denied um, a visa because of his connection uh, with Cuba. And I think that was the first, if second time he was in the country was when he came to Princeton to teach a course that I had made up. And the only people in the class who could speak fluent English and fluent Spanish were the students. <laughs> but we got on very well, you know. But I understand, particularly him, because he was, he was, you know, obviously this extraordinary writer. When I read the, him the, for the first time, I didn't know you could do that. You mean you can do that? You can, it can open up that way? It was an enormous lesson. But I, you know, he can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned in his relationship with Castro. More hands. Has somebody got a microphone in their hand? There's one. Uh, yeah. Hi. Can you hear? Yes. Um, you spoke about your admiration for Hillary Clinton. If she For was Hillary Clinton. Clinton. Oh, yes. If she was to be elected and asked you to do an inauguration speech like Mayor Angelou had done for Bill Clinton, would you say yes? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. Okay. Because? Like a poem? No, I can't. <laughs> I can't do the ceremonial uh, public engraved word, you know, thing. It's very private for me uh, and close, even though I'm speaking and reaching out to everybody I can find to read my work. The act of writing for me is very private and doesn't concern. It's the only thing I do in life where I'm absolutely free. Nobody tells me what to do. I can do what I want. I'm nobody's daughter, I'm nobody's mother, I'm nobody's anything. This is me, all alone with this imagination. And the fact that it becomes public and other people like it is just gravy. <laughs> <laughs> More hands. 
Uh, can we, can we, I'm sorry to um, discriminate against the front. We just had two from the front. Anyone right at the back? Um, I've got the mic. So. Excellent. Oh. So take advantage. You've got the mic. The floor is yours. Okay. Um, just firstly, I just want to say Where thank you very you, much personally to Toni Morrison as a writer myself. Ah, got it. Oh, really? Okay. Um, ooh, slightly embarrassing. Um, okay. Just a great personal thank you to you, Toni Morrison, as a writer. But the question I wanted to ask you is, um, very early in his career, James Baldwin traveled to Africa, and he's talked about his, a certain sense of resentment he had to the continent. And I wondered for you, both as a writer and maybe as a person of African-American origin, what are your feelings about the continent as a place and an idea? That's a tiny question. <laughs> I, I, it's very complicated. First of all, you have to know I, am, I have never been to the continent anywhere in Africa. I have been invited several times. Certain parts of the continent I'm eager, I'd like very much to go to South Africa. Uh, really, it interests me a lot. The writers there, the music there. And also I had an occasion to meet and have a conversation with Nelson Mandela when I won the Nobel Prize because he won the Peace Prize along with both uh, whatever. So we had a, what was, his name? what was his name? I think it was de Klerk, wasn't it? Was it de Klerk? Oh yeah, that's right, that was the other one, sorry. <laughs> you know, while you'd stand in this room and the two Peace Prize winners would come in the room, uh, Mandela and de Klerk, and people would clap <coughs> and run and rush to Mandela and <laughs> declare <laughs> I too have <laughs> it's shameful but anyway back to Africa um, yeah, it's, it's a little complicated for me I had a chance to go once and because uh, I'd been asked several times to do um, a lecture the Stephen Biko lecture and I wanted very much to do it, and I kept putting it off and putting it off next year, next year. And then when I had the chance to go, it was during the holidays. Uh, somebody else was going somewhere, and I was going to be on that plane. And I called them to say, oh, you know, I'm going to be here, and I can do the Stephen Biko lecture. And they said, school's out. It's a holiday. <laughs> so I missed my chance altogether. But I can't think of it, you know, it's like thinking, what if you think of Europeans? It's a big place with a lot of countries in it and a lot of languages and a lot of tribes and I can't think of the whole idea of it because I'm, you know, I'm loath to do that. What I love are the writers that I know, Tenoa Achebe and Soyenka and you know, all those people whose writing made a big difference to me in my own work. You know, when the negritude movement and so on, all of that was extremely important. So I've always approached it via their writers, the writers that come from various parts of the country, rather than, you know, the geography or the politics uh, since, you know, the end of apartheid and the changes that are going on in all parts of Africa. 
if I've got anything in common with Tony Morrison or Jan Morris, perhaps it's that, the enthusiasm for literature that allows one to understand the world or at least begin to explore the world through the mind and through the work of other writers. It's to my eternal regret that I never met or interviewed Jan Morris before she died. Um, she died recently, aged 94, uh, and given that I'm 40, it just gives me a great deal of hope that the next 54 years perhaps hold the kind of adventures that Jan lived. After she died, I found her phone number among my papers. I'd been given it by a mutual contact um, who subsequently told me that Jan wasn't well enough to take an interview or take a phone call. So I left it buried somewhere. And then a few weeks later, there was a massive splash in the Observer where somebody else had gone up to Trevan Morris to interview her. So I did feel uh, a massive tinge of regret about that at the time and, and now she's gone even more so. But not too much because we still have her fantastic body of work and luckily for listeners to this podcast we have this great selection of travel pieces um, which Jan picked out from a collection to celebrate the 80th birthday of Faber and Faber. And talking of age, of course, I've been with Faber and Faber since before most of these characters were born. <laughs> and I'm go going to be with Faber and Faber uh, into my afterlife because uh, they're publishing a posthumous book of mine called Allegorizings. Uh, which they're going to publish on the day I kick the bucket. The minute I die, the presses start rolling. <laughs> I may say that they have paid me my advance. <laughs> <laughs> For what it's worth. <laughs> Incidentally, the only anecdote I have about Faber and Faber is about Peter Soito, a character years ago, and I said to him once, do you think it would be possible for you to sell a few more of my books? He said, we are not in the best-selling business. <laughs> in the meantime, talking of publishing with favour, they are producing for me later this year a rather peculiar collection of two or three hundred little sort of episodes about tangential contacts I've had with people during my life of writing and travel. So I thought it might be appropriate to pluck a few of these. Don't worry, not two hundred of them, <laughs> just, just ten or so to show what kind of book it is. I call it a book of glimpses. And here's the first glimpse. It's called A Sighting in Texas. On my fourth day in the city, I looked through the window and saw a dreamlike figure sauntering by. He had a sack over his arm and a stick over his shoulder, and he wore a high-crowned hat and a cloak, I think, and he strolled past easy, insolent, and amused. My heart leapt to see him. Who was that? I cried, rushing to the window. That man with a stick and a high-crowned hat and a sack on his arm. My hostess returned me reprovingly to our conversation. I saw nobody, she sweetly and carefully said. 
but tell me, have you had time to see our new Picasso in the Fine Arts Museum? And will you have opportunity to meet with Mrs. Ovita Culp Hobby? Well, I don't, never did meet Mrs. Hobby as far as I know. Because, um, unlike the Hay Festival, I am antipathetic to a celebrity. Uh, you're meant to laugh, that. <laughs> I hope I don't have to prompt you throughout. <laughs> anyway, I was much more interested in that guy outside the window than I was in Mrs. Vita Culp Hobby. And it's mostly outsiders that I've glimpsed in this book. Here's one from Manhattan. I chanced one day off the jogger's circuit in Central Park to come across a young black man fast asleep on a bench below the lake. His overcoat was thrown over him, his books were placed neatly side by side upon the ground. His head upon his clasped hands, as in kindergarten plays, you know, he was breathing regularly and gently as though bewitched. Even as I watched, a grey squirrel skipping across the green leapt across his legs to the back of the bench where it sat tremulously chewing. And almost at the same time there arose a brisk gust of wind tagging with salt. A scatter of leaves and fallen blossoms came with it, flicked and eddied around the bench. The squirrel paused, twitched and vanished. The black man opened his eyes as the breeze dusted his face and seeing me standing there bemused smiled me a slow, sleepy smile. Be not afeard, I said ridiculously on the spur of the moment. The aisle is full of noises. <laughs> yeah, the man replied, stretching and scratching mightily in the morning. Bugs too. <laughs> This next piece, I'm only, it's pure self-indulgence. I'm only including it here because I think it's so good. <laughs> Don't worry, it's only five lines. And you probably won't think it is, but I think it is. It's about Poland, a country that has always moved me. When communism failed in Poland, materialism took over. There were bright new shops, posh hotels, plenty of cars, all the usual paraphernalia of capitalism. Nice car, I remarked one day to the man who drove me to the airport in his big new Volvo. He shrugged his shoulders and looked at me with a dry smile. I knew what he meant. Well, no, I added an afterthought. I suppose it's not Chopin. And he knew what I meant, too. Isn't that good? <laughs> Thank you. That's the best in that. I warn you, that's the best piece. I was going out through the door of the Albergo Savoy Excelsior in Trieste when a man simultaneously entered. We bumped into one another, our bags and luggage got mixed up, and we both apologised. He was a theatrical-looking character with a camel coat slung over his shoulders, perhaps one of the opera singers from the Teatro Verdi. When we had disentangled ourselves, he stood there for a moment motionless. Where are you from? he said. Wales. Wales, how wonderful. <laughs> oh, you splendid liar. I said to myself, you've never heard of the place. <laughs> uh, there was a pause. I laughed and so did he. He shook my hand in both of his. We lingered for a moment and parted. And when I think of Trieste, lust and love, I often think of him.
I joined an eminent, kind, <coughs> and cultivated actress in taking a cab to an address on Second Avenue in Manhattan. Said the cab driver, Whereabouts is that on Second Avenue, lady? Without a flicker in her elegant equanimity, she replied, Don't ask me, bud. You're the fucking cab driver. <laughs> well, that's not a bad one, huh? An Australian boy once told me that his father had recently taken part in a military parade. What kind of a hat did he wear? I asked, just for something to say. One of those hats, he replied, which were flat on one side, but turned up on the other. I know, I said, like the ones they used to wear in the Great War. There was silence for a moment, and then the boy spoke. I hate the Great War, he said, and my heart turned. <laughs> Thinking of Gallipoli. This is about America, and it expresses what I most love about the country. Because I'm very fond of it, for all its faults. It was Saturday afternoon at West Point, and many of the cadets, men and women, were preparing to go out. I saw one emerging from her barracks in what I took to be her semi-dress uniform, a trim grey trouser suit with a shiny peak cap, very smart and flattering to her figure. I followed her down the path towards the Eisenhower statue, left, right, left, right, head up, arms swinging, brisk as could be, to where her father was waiting to greet her. And then, talk about symbolisms. He was your very image of a kindly, homespun countryman, a figure from an old magazine cover, Saturday evening post traps, wearing boots and a floppy brown hat, his face shining with pride and happiness. She's, she broke into a run, her cap went askew for a moment, and into his strong American arms she fell. I was in the Isle of Man for the first time in my life working on a book about Europe Faber and Faber, 2006 I bought a book about Manx folklore and finding an open air cafe beside the sea I settled down to read it with a plate of prawns and a Guinness the sun was lovely, the prawns were excellent the Guinness went down like a treat and I congratulated myself upon my choice of profession I was in real heaven Presently, a lady, came over, a lady came over to my table and handed me a pamphlet. Oh, thank you, I said. How kind of you. What's it about? Oh, my dear, she emolliently replied, it is only to reassure you that God is always with the lonely. <laughs> and he was, wasn't he? <laughs> At the Rock Hotel in Gibraltar, I overheard two very old-school American matrons commenting upon the grumpy hotel porter who just dumped their bags unceremoniously on the lobby floor. What an unpleasant man, said one. What can you expect, responded the other. He is British, my dear, and male. <laughs> <laughs> I was a guest once at Buckingham Palace at a reception for publishers and writers and a motley crew we were. I expect some of you were there. <laughs> at the end of the evening... <laughs> at the end of the evening, uh, wanting to leave, I, I had to go to bed early. 
Bedelin. I looked around for somebody to say thank you to. But the Queen, the princes, the dukes, and all that lot all seemed to have gone away. So I thought I looked around a bit and I thought, the hell with it, I'll go myself. So I went. And at the palace gates, I found a policeman. I was brought up, I told him, to say thank you for having me when I've been to a party. So as I can't find the Queen or the Duke or anybody out there in there, I'll say it to you instead. Thank you very much for having me to your nice party. <laughs> Not at all, madam, the cop replied. Stylishly, I thought. Not at all. Come again. <laughs> Vienna. Wildness, freeness, free, yes. Wildness, freeness, recklessness. Freeness, funny word, isn't it? This, that means liberty, I think. I meant liberty, you know. <laughs> Wildness, liberty, recklessness. <laughs> Not in Vienna. I went to a police court there one day and noticing one of the accused studying a road map between hearings, asked him if he was planning an escape. <laughs> no, he said, I am deciding the best route to visit my aunt in Graz. <laughs> Here's the last one to end with, which I hope expresses the ethos of this book that Favors is so kindly doing, and also, I, I like to think, expresses the ethos of my own life. I was wandering around the streets of Alexandra's Arab Quarter when I happened to catch the eye of a wrinkled cabbie with a towel wrapped around his head high above his poor Rosinante on the seat of his gary. On the impulse of the moment I winked and instantly there crossed his face an expression of indescribable knowingness and complicity half comic, half conspiratorial as though between us he, the city and I we'd plumbed the depths of human and historical experience and we're still coming up for more. <laughs> oh. oh! no, come on. Hang on a bit, I thought that was the end, but there's another one here. <laughs> it's in rhyme, rather amazing. It's called The Writer's Equinox. On the road to Gesligandrich, that's the Welsh for hay, you know, I met an aged author dancing along that way. His face was all a-laughing, his hair was all astray. Sometimes he sang a melody, sometimes cried, Hooray! Good sir, said I, please tell me, why are you so blithe and gay? Why sing you hallelujah? Why shoot hello, halle? What are you celebrating? Enlighten me, I pray. He stopped all of a sudden, as if in some dismay. Said he, have you forgot? He was very old, mind you. <laughs> said he, have you, and very sort of literary. Have, <laughs> said he, have you forgotten tis the 30th of May? Has no one ever taught you the meaning of this day? Well, hearken then, said he, and listen to what I'm going to say. Whenever 80 years do pass, I'll be that as it may. All us writing folk and poets do dance along this way, for tis the writer's equinox, Faber, St. Faber's Day. <laughs> Dylan will be appearing at Hay 2021 with Merrid Hopwood on the 30th of May and Joe Lloyd on the 2nd of June.
The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. And you can hear thousands of other recordings over on the Hay Player on our website.